Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, this, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 25, Jesus' cleansing of the temple. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. And let's give our attention now to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit writes under the inspiration of Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what we read from God's Word, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your grace now. Anytime we open the Word of God, it's a spiritual activity in which we need the illumination of your Spirit. And so we pray now that you would please grant us insight, that you would grant us understanding, that you would grant us faith leading to obedience. Father, please keep me from error as we seek to unfold your Word this morning. Please grant your church discernment that we might all hold fast to the things that are true and so be conformed to the image of Christ through the ministry of His Spirit, worked out in His Word. We commit our time to you, God. We ask for your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have heard it said before that human beings are made to worship. We're made to worship. By nature, we are drawn to what is praiseworthy, to what is beautiful and awe-inspiring. It's one of the ways that God has built eternity into the human heart. We long to see and to respond to glory. We are hardwired to be worshipers. However, this innate desire to worship is not always directed towards worthy ends, is it? Think of some of the ways that people follow a sports team with almost religious devotion. There's nothing wrong with celebrating your team. My team won yesterday. Nothing wrong with celebrating your team. 
But even the best victory on the field is a small substitute for glory. Or think about the way that some people respond to the creation. They look at a a forest or a mountain range and they conclude that creation must be God. The point is, we are, by nature, made to worship. That's innate. It's, it's, It's hardwired into us. But on our own, we lack the authority to define what is truly worthy of worship. Left to ourselves, we will drift away from worship and we will drift into idolatry. Sadly, that drift away from true worship is on display in the Bible, in the history of God's people. One of the many striking features of the Old Testament is that following the exodus from Egypt, Israel's worship tends to degenerate over time. What I mean is that the people of Israel did not get more faithful to God. They did not become more faithful to God over the centuries. They grew less faithful to Him. For example, God gave Israel His law on Mount Sinai, which was intended to regulate their life and to lead them into true worship. But what happened in the very next chapter after God gave Israel His law? The people made the golden calves and they committed idolatry. Or think of how the nation of Israel treated the temple. Remember, Solomon's temple was unbelievably beautiful, which was intended to speak to the beauty and presence of God, since God was said to dwell there. And yet, years after Solomon, did the presence of the temple lead Israel into true worship? Shockingly, no, it didn't. The temple actually became a hindrance to Israel's worship. Jeremiah chapter 7, God warned Israel that judgment was coming. And instead of repenting, the people of Israel said, we have the temple of the Lord. Why would we need to repent? We're offering the sacrifices. We're worshiping at the temple. We already know God. What do you mean we need to repent, Jeremiah? We have the temple of the Lord. You see, Israel's history is a prime example of this sad tendency in the human heart. We are made to worship. That's abundantly clear. You're made to worship something. And yet on our own, we lack the authority to define what true worship is. Even more importantly, on our own, we lack the ability to keep ourselves faithful in that worship. In other words, if sinful people like us, and we're all sinners... If sinful people like us are ever going to fulfill the purpose for which we were made, then we need someone who can not only lead us into true worship, but also someone who can deal with our propensity to make idols out of the things that God has given us. What does this have to do with John chapter 2? Everything, actually. It has everything to do with John chapter 2. What happens in this passage is the culmination of a biblical theme of worship. A theme of worship that's been running all through the history of Israel and now reaches its pinnacle, its climax in the Lord Jesus Christ. By cleansing the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus inserts himself into the issue of worship. He enters the temple, the very center of of Israel's religious life, and Jesus turns things upside down. 
in both both his actions and his words, Jesus purifies the worship of God's people and then he refocuses it on himself. You see, this is the solution to that sad history that we just briefly reviewed. This is the solution to that sad history of failing to worship God. Jesus enters the center of Israel's worshiping life, and with complete authority, Jesus recenters all of it on himself. And he makes himself the focus of worship. In that sense, this passage is working on two different levels. First and foremost, the cleansing of the temple is telling us something about Jesus, about who he is as the Messiah, and about his authority that means all, of, all people must relate to God through him. This passage is telling us something about Jesus. And at the same time, the passage is also telling us something about ourselves. We, we can't look inward to define true worship. We can't depend upon ourselves to even keep ourselves faithful to God. No, the Bible, and John chapter 2 in particular, require us to worship God on His terms. And His terms are established by none other than Jesus Christ. So, this is our plan for this morning. We're going to study John chapter 2 in order to pay attention to how Jesus defines true worship. How does Jesus define true, and God-honoring worship. He does so in three ways, and that's going to be our focus this morning. And by submitting ourselves to Jesus, we want to join Him in worshiping God in a way that truly pleases Him. Three ways that Jesus defines true worship. The first is found in verses 13 to 17, where Jesus teaches us that true worship honors the presence of God. True worship honors the presence of God. Right from the start, we learn that this is an important moment in Jesus' ministry. Verse 13 establishes the setting, and it's the high holy day of Israel's worship. Look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You probably remember the background to the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, when God struck down all the firstborn of Egypt... But all the firstborn of Israel were spared from destruction. Why? Because they were covered by the blood of the lamb. The Passover lamb was sacrificed and its blood was spread upon the doorposts. And the angel of death there passed over the people of God. Here in verse 13, Jesus comes to Jerusalem on this high holy day. But it's not only the day that makes the moment significant, it's also the place. Jesus comes to the temple in Jerusalem, on the Passover to the temple. Again, we need to remember our Old Testament background. The temple was the center of Israel's religious life. It was at the temple that God was said to meet with his people. It was at the temple where God's presence was said to dwell in the Holy of Holies, between the wings of the cherubim, over the Ark of the Covenant, And it was at the temple that atonement was made for the people's sins as the priests would offer the sacrifices to God. So I want you to note the connection that's established in verse 13. Jesus comes on the high holy day of Israel's worship, the Passover, and he comes to the center of Israel's religious life, the temple. 
right from the start, that should get your attention. The themes of redemption and worship are coming together in one moment. Redemption and worship. The setting is telling us that the text is significant. But that setting is also what makes verse 14 so shocking. What does Jesus find in the temple on the high holy day of Israel? Look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, we need to be careful not to overread verse 14. All of this activity is happening in the, what was called the court of the Gentiles, which is the outer area of the temple complex. So it's not like these people are sitting in the sanctuary of the temple selling sacrifices and, and changing money. On some level, these people were offering a necessary service. Folks would travel to Jerusalem from all over Israel, and when they got there, they would need to purchase an animal for sacrifice. And they would also need to pay the temple tax, which could only be paid in a particular kind of currency. So you would need the money changer to change out your Galilean dollars for your other kind of dollars so that you could pay the temple tax. They were, all these people were offering a necessary service. So we need to be careful not to overread verse 14 as though everybody present there was just disregarding the worship of God. But at the same time, we also need to acknowledge that all of this commercial activity would have been a distraction. At the best, it detracted from the emphasis on worship. And at worst, it would have been outright irreverent. In fact, that's how Jesus sees the situation. As necessary as these folks were in terms of their services, Jesus sees no place for them in the temple. Look at verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Friends, sometimes when you're studying the Bible, the simple observation is the right one. Jesus drives out the merchants because they don't belong in the temple. They don't belong there. Yes, their trade was necessary, but their trade could take place elsewhere, outside the temple. Indeed, historically, that's where all of this commerce happened. Outside the temple grounds, on the hillside, as you would go up to the temple complex, that's where you would find all of this commerce in the past. So the simple observation is, is the right one. The merchants don't belong in the temple. They're in the wrong place. And Jesus, in verse 16, confirms our observation. Notice how Jesus interprets his own actions. Verse 16, And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In short, Jesus' point is that the merchants are misusing the temple grounds. They don't belong here. Their trade distracts from the temple's purpose. This, this is the key, I think, to understanding these verses. The trade going on in the courtyard distorts the definition of worship. It distorts the definition of worship. Let me explain what I mean. True worship can never be merely transactional. Worship is not a bartering process with God. We don't offer Him our goods in return for His services. 
We can't purchase our religious wares, present them to God in worship in hopes that He returns to us His favor. And that's what all of the trade in the courtyard risks communicating to the people. It distorts the definition of worship. True worship involves entering God's presence, not a religious marketplace. And true worship means responding to God as the holy creator, not bartering with him like he's a salesman. And that's why Jesus acts as he does. He's purifying the temple because the presence of the merchants is distorting the definition of worship. Now, does that mean that every businessman in the, in the temple courtyard is just sitting there blaspheming God? No, that, that's not what I'm saying. Rather, the problem is with the atmosphere that their trade created. By putting all of the trade right there in the temple, the merchants were distorting the atmosphere, the picture of true worship. It was not a place where God was being honored as holy. It was a place where God was being bartered with like some sort of heavenly salesman. Even so, what does this tell us about Jesus? It's a fascinating question. We know that he's not sinfully losing his temper. The Lord Jesus never sinned, praise God. He's not acting out of rage. So what does this tell us about Jesus? What's the significance? Well, the Apostle John tells you. Verse 17. Look at what he says. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Friends, that's a quote from Psalm 69. And that's a psalm of David. And in Psalm 69, David suffers because of his commitment to pure worship. The wicked people in the land revile God's presence. They even defame God's house, his temple. And that reproach falls upon David. So Psalm 69 is a picture of the righteous worshiper, even the king, whose commitment to true worship brings opposition. But here's the interesting thing about Psalm 69, which if you haven't read Psalm 69 lately, you can do so this afternoon. It's a great way to follow up on the sermon. So at the end of Psalm 69, what do we find David doing? Well, he's praising God, even in the midst of opposition. Despite the reproach, David's commitment to true worship, his zeal for the house of God, compels him as the king to offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. In fact, by the end of Psalm 69, David says, thanksgiving and praise are better to you than even oxen. So in the psalm, Psalm 69, David gets rid of the oxen and he replaces them with thanksgiving. Now, back to John chapter 2. Verse 17 is a bridge from King David to King Jesus. What David pictured in part, Jesus represents in full. As the true king, Jesus is completely committed to the true worship of God. This is part of why he has come. He has come to restore the people of God in true God-honoring worship. This is why Jesus even drives out the sacrificial animals, even the oxen. And what does he put in their place? Thanksgiving, praise, heartfelt worship. God's not pleased with heartless sacrifices. 
He's pleased with your whole heart, devoted to him in praise and gratitude and song and thanksgiving. God is pleased with hearts that are committed to honoring his presence. So the cleansing of the temple is not an angry outburst from Jesus. (laughs) It's a picture, it's a miniature of his mission. He has come to restore true worship and to lead the people of God once and for all into the presence of God with integrity of heart. Still, there's a question that we have to answer at this point in our study if we want to not only understand the passage, but also to apply it, and we always want to apply it. We don't just want to understand, we want to apply too. So there's a question that we have to answer here. It's a biblical fact that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, right? It's a biblical fact. It was God who instituted the animal sacrifices in the temple. But Jesus drives out those animal sacrifices. So, if Jesus is purifying worship, then where is the sacrifice? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How exactly is Jesus saying that sinners come into the presence of God? That's the second truth in our text about true worship. From verses 18 to 22, Jesus answers that question by teaching us that true worship rests solely on the work of Christ. True worship rests solely on the work of Christ. The Jewish religious leaders understand that something significant is happening. Notice their question in verse 18. So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? You could paraphrase their question like this. Who gave you the authority to do this? Who put you in charge? The religious leaders understand, they recognize that Jesus' actions are a clear claim to authority. By driving out the merchants, Jesus asserts that he presides over Israel's worship. Not the Pharisees, not the priests, not the Sanhedrin. Jesus reigns in the temple in Jerusalem. And the Jewish religious leaders understand that to some level, which is why they ask Jesus for a sign. Prove your authority. Who gave you the right to do this? Now, the Apostle John loves to make use of irony in his gospel. In this this book of the Bible, the Apostle John loves to make use of irony. And this is a clear example of it. Think about it. The Jews ask for a sign. But what has Jesus just done in verse 15? A sign. The cleansing of the temple is the sign. The entire point of cleansing the temple is to display Jesus' superior authority. Even his authority over the religious establishment. And that means the Jews in verse 18, they're not asking for more understanding. Their question is not genuine. They're not asking from a heart that wants to understand. They're asking because they're blind. Because they see but they don't see. Here is the king of Israel, the restorer of true worship, the fulfillment of Psalm 69, the Lord of the temple, standing in front of them. And the only thing the Jews can think to do is question him. Not submit to him, not bow before him, not respond to him, question him. Jesus, however, still answers their question. I wouldn't have answered their question. 
Jesus, though, answers it. This is where we get to the foundation for worship now. Listen to Jesus' answer, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a far-fetched claim to just completely unrealistic power. Rebuild the entire temple in three days, taking 46 years to get to this point, Jesus. Who could do that? Only someone with divine, godlike power could do that. But the very idea is preposterous. At least that's how the religious leaders take it. They're incredulous. Look at verse 20. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Again, they see, but they don't see. They don't understand. They think Jesus is crazy. And that's because there's something deeper at work here. Something that will only be revealed through the cross. Please don't miss that point, friends. What makes the difference in understanding who Jesus is? The cross. The cross is the great interpretive act of God where he tells you what you should know and believe and hold to regarding his son. The cross makes all the difference. Notice verse 21. The apostle John gives us the understanding. Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. That's a short verse, but it is packed full of significance. Jesus is zealous for God's house, as verse 17 says. He is zealous for God the Father to be worshipped rightly in holiness and reverence and purity. And that zeal, friends, will consume Jesus. It will cost him his life. He is so committed to God that Jesus will die for his zeal. It will cost him his life. These very same religious leaders who are questioning him in the temple will one day put him to death outside Jerusalem's walls. Jesus will do all the signs that you could possibly imagine. He will display his authority time and time and time again. And in the end, what will all of those signs get Jesus? Death. Even death on a cross. And therein lies the glory, friends. That will be the greatest sign of Jesus' ministry, his death and his resurrection. It's through his death and resurrection that the truth is finally seen. Notice verse 22, where John tells you how you ought to understand Jesus. Verse 22, when therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So with the light of the gospel, we can now put all of the pieces together. The temple that Jesus refers to in verse 19 is his body. The destruction of that temple is his death on the cross. And the rebuilding of that temple is his resurrection from the dead. If the religious leaders want to see Jesus' authority then they will see it most clearly where? At his cross and through his resurrection. The cross is the key to understanding the Lord Jesus. This is such an important takeaway, not just for this morning, but for every Lord's Day. When it comes to the truth of the gospel, the clearest proof, so to speak, is the empty tomb. If people ask you why they should believe the gospel... 
tell them two things. One, God commands them to. And two, the tomb is empty. If people ask you why they should believe the gospel, tell them God commands you to believe and his trustworthiness is revealed in the empty tomb. The death and resurrection of Christ are the God-given demonstration. It's the biblical proof of the gospel. Friends, this is why we should always seek to take unbelievers to the truth of the gospel as revealed in the scriptures. When it comes to things like evangelism and apologetics, there is certainly a place for discussing the historical evidence of the Bible. I'm not against showing people the historical evidence of the Bible. There's a time for even answering people's philosophical questions about the existence of God or the problem of evil. But in the end, where should we be taking unbelievers in all of those conversations? To the empty tomb. To the death and resurrection of Jesus. Take people to the scriptures. Show them the promise of a savior in the Old Testament. The fulfillment of that promise in the New Testament. And then call them to believe. The cross and resurrection are the demonstration of God's truthfulness in Jesus Christ. So take people to the gospel and call them to see and trust and believe the reality of Jesus Christ raised from the dead. If you want a sign, that's the sign. Believe. And this, this same centrality of the gospel applies to our, our worship as well. I don't, I don't want to move on yet. I want to linger here and just think about how Jesus' teaching in these verses ought to shape our worship of God. A short summary of this passage would be that Jesus replaces the temple and its sacrificial system with himself. Jesus fulfills the purpose of the temple. The worship of God, in other words, now centers on Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection. This has massive implications for what we do as a church. Where do believers encounter the presence of God? Not in a physical building or a temple, but in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. To know Christ by faith is to be given the privilege of drawing near to God with confidence, knowing that we will find mercy and grace to help in time of need. God's presence is not mediated through a structure. It's found now in His Son, the Word made flesh, whom we have received by faith. How do believers make their needs known to God? Not through an earthly priest, but through Jesus Christ, the great high priest over the house of God. To know Christ by faith means that we are part of God's royal priesthood. We have access to God himself where we can pray and plead both for our needs and for the needs of others. Through our great high priest Jesus, we too are part of God's royal priesthood. And thus we are able to serve him, worship him, and serve others. Where do believers find forgiveness for their sin? Not through the animal sacrifices in a temple, not through confession to a priest, but through the sacrifice of Christ who shed his blood to make atonement for his people. To know Christ by faith means that we are covered once and for all by the sacrifice of the Lamb. And as the true and greater Passover lamb, Christ's blood washes us clean. Friends, if you have come to church today trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood has cleansed you of all of your sins. 
Even those sins that wake you up in the middle of the night and haunt you that perhaps God hasn't forgiven them, those too he cleanses. His blood satisfies God's wrath. If you are a Christian this morning, the only disposition of the Father towards you is love. How deep the Father's love for us. Without biblical authority, we can't sing that song. But on biblical authority, we can sing it with joy. Because Christ's blood satisfies the wrath of God. Christ's blood ensures our standing before the Father's throne. God, if you're a Christian, God cannot cast you out of his presence. Because your standing there is secured by the blood of his Son. And he will never look upon the blood of his Son with anything other than acceptance. Christ's blood ensures your standing before the Father. Through the Lamb of God, we have true and lasting forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, all of that, all of that wonderful gospel truth is true because of verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In his earthly life, the Lord Jesus was so zealous for his father's worship that he went to the cross where he was consumed for us and for our salvation. And after three days, through the power of the Spirit, the Lord Jesus rebuilt the temple of his broken body. And now with resurrection glory, he is the focal point of our worship. Christ is the foundation of our standing before God. He is the center of our life. And as his church... This is how we apply Jesus' remarkable claim here in John chapter 2. We make Christ and Him crucified the focal point of our life as a church. This is why we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 earlier in the service. The word of the cross is folly to the world, but to us it is the wisdom and power of God. We apply this passage by boasting only in the cross of Christ. He is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And this means that every Lord's Day, every single Sunday, we make much of the gospel. From the pulpit to the nursery, we build our ministry on the worship of Christ. At every level of the church's life, we amplify the good news of Christ and Him crucified. We apply the gospel, we celebrate the gospel, we preach the gospel, we counsel with the gospel, we disciple with the gospel. If Christ crucified is the center of true worship, then being a faithful church means nothing less than putting the gospel front and center in everything that we do. The gospel is not the front door to Christianity. It is Christianity. The gospel is not what brings you into the church. It's what defines the church. Every single day, from our singing to our praying, from Sunday to every day, what are we seeking to do? Know Christ and make him known through the preaching of his gospel. That's true worship. It's so much more than a service that happens in this room. It's so much more than that. It's resting everything we have solely on the work of Jesus Christ. That's true worship. And that bridges us right into the final paragraph of the text. I'm so worked up, I'm about to lose my microphone. 
that bridges us right into the final paragraph of the passage. Verses 23 to 25, we go from the work of Christ to our response. This is the third way that Jesus defines true worship. True worship requires genuine faith in Christ. True worship requires genuine faith in Christ. Things look promising in verse 23. Notice what John says. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So, on the surface, it seems that there are some who respond to Jesus. There are some in Jerusalem who appear to trust Jesus. Perhaps the opposition of the religious leaders will be isolated. Perhaps more people are going to be on board with Jesus. But that's just on the surface. And if we learn anything in John's gospel, it's that saving faith can never be superficial. Even in our passage, there are a couple of indications that the response in verse 23 is less than genuine. The first is the mention of signs. See there, verse 23, they saw his signs. It's true that Jesus' signs reveal his glory, which is what we learned a couple of weeks ago when, we turned, when Jesus turned the water into wine. But it's also true that seeing Jesus' signs is not the same as genuine faith. If we were to peek ahead to John chapter 6, this is what we would learn. Do you remember what happened after Jesus fed the 5,000? He rebuked the people for not believing in him. He said, you don't trust me, you just came to get your bellies full. Seeing signs is not the same as trusting Jesus. So the mention of signs in verse 23 is the first indication that something is off. The second indication is in verse 24. Listen again to verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. John is using a play on words between verse 23 and verse 24. Do you see the verb entrust in verse 24? Do you see that? He did not entrust himself to them. That's the same verb for believed in verse 23. It's it's, it's actually one of John's favorite words, the verb to believe. And that play on words is giving us Jesus' evaluation of these people They appear to entrust themselves to him, but he does not entrust himself to them. He knows that the response in verse 23 is superficial. That's what John means in verse 25 when he says that Jesus knew what was in man. He knows the human heart. Since he is God in the flesh, he knows the human heart. He's not fooled by superficial following. He discerns genuine faith. Now, think about how this prepares us for what's coming next in the Gospel of John. This short little paragraph, verses 23 to 25, is a little preview of what's about to happen in the Gospel of John. Who does Jesus meet in chapter 3? Nicodemus. And what does Jesus do to Nicodemus? He discerns his heart. And he knows what Nicodemus is really asking. Then who does Jesus meet in John chapter 4? The Samaritan woman. 
And as much as she tries to dodge Jesus' questions, he knows her heart and discerns where she's at. So these verses are a little preview of what's about to happen in the Gospel of John. The point is to say, Jesus knows people, and he discerns where they're at spiritually, and you must respond to him with genuine faith because you're not going to be able to fool him. Now, there's a massive, massive pastoral question hanging out there now, isn't there? Perhaps somebody in here is even asking this question. Then how do I know if my faith is genuine? The people in verse 23 look like they trust Jesus, but they don't. And Jesus knows their heart. He knows genuine faith. So how can I be sure that my faith is genuine, Pastor? How can I be sure that I'm really trusting in Christ? If the people in verse 23 were just superficial, I don't want to be like them. So how can I know? That's a great question. And the answer is found by connecting the second and third points of the sermon today. The only way to worship God is through genuine faith. And what is genuine faith? Resting solely upon the work of Christ. That's genuine faith. You see that connection? Superficial faith treats Jesus as a means to an end. Superficial faith comes to Jesus because you can hear, you hear that he does some incredible stuff and maybe if I just appease him, he will do some incredible stuff for me. Superficial faith, not to sound too flippant, superficial faith treats Jesus almost like a genie that fulfills your wishes. It's very similar to what was happening in the temple back in the start of the passage. Superficial faith treats Jesus as a means to an end. And that end is getting what you want. But genuine faith is different. Genuine faith does not treat Jesus as a means to my end. Genuine faith knows and confesses and recognizes that my only hope to ever come into the presence of God is the work of Christ and not my own work. Genuine faith knows that even at my best, my attempts to worship God, please God, and serve God are unrighteous and in need of a sacrifice of cleansing to make me right in God's presence. Genuine faith understands that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Do you see it? That's genuine faith. That's where the assurance of faith is found, by resting in Christ and believing that my confidence is rooted solely in his finished work. So if you are here this morning and you're a Christian and you're struggling with the assurance of your faith, I want you to hear me very clearly. The place of assurance is not found inside of you. You're not assured of your salvation by looking inside and saying, well, I, I seem rather genuine. Assurance of salvation is found by looking outside of you to the work of Christ on your behalf and recognizing that your only hope, your only hope is that Jesus suffered and died. They destroyed the temple of his body and in three days he raised it again. That's assurance of faith, friends. 
A friend of mine who has a wonderful testimony, whenever she shares her testimony, she always says, the most important thing about my testimony is that I'm trusting in Christ today. She doesn't start way back then. She starts today. That's genuine faith, banking everything that I've got on Jesus Christ. Genuine faith leads to true worship because genuine faith boasts in Christ alone. Friends, we we are hardwired to worship. I cannot stress it enough. You were made to see and respond to glory. It's the reason why you exist. It's to see the glory of God and respond to it in praise and obedience. And what John 2 is teaching us is that the only pathway to true worship, the only pathway to true worship is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is how we enter the presence of God. Not through our own work, but through Christ's. And there in the presence of God, with genuine faith, with genuine faith, we're singing one note now and for the rest of eternity. And that's the note of Christ and Him crucified. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it, it's, it just boggles our mind that every page of your word that we open to read, what you give us there is the glory of a Savior, the provision of your Son, His sacrifice of atonement, His his resurrection glory, His promises to complete the good work that He has started. It's astounding to us, God, that you would not only reveal to us yourself in your son, but that you would do so in so many ways. So that even as we read here of the cleansing of the temple, what we are reading of is the glory of the Son of God, raised up, crucified, buried, and risen again for us and for our salvation. Lord, we pray, we pray that you would help us to make our lives as individual believers, and our lives corporately together as members of this church, that you would help us, Father, to make our lives rooted and anchored in the work of Christ. We pray, Father, that we would be known as a gospel people, that we would love the good news, preach the good news, celebrate the good news, that we would stake all of our confidence upon Christ and Him crucified. We pray, Father, that our boast would be only in the Lord. Help us, God. Help us, we pray. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Come now, Father, by your Holy Spirit. Please apply the word to our lives. Bear fruit so that Christ is glorified and we are encouraged in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.